Thank you. I'm going to be continuing today uh, from Matthew chapter 14. And I'm not switched on here. Right. Is that better? Right, yes. Okay, and I'll be continuing today from Matthew chapter 14. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I started uh, looking at this chapter. And to put this in context, we're over four weeks looking at Holy Week. So although within, if you like, the church calendar today would be seen as Palm Sunday, we actually looked at that, I think, about three weeks ago. And then last week, I looked at what would traditionally get called Maundy Thursday. But as I pointed out, the Jewish day started at sunset. And so when I was looking at Jesus and his disciples as they uh, celebrated the Passover, and then Jesus instituted what, what we now call the Last Supper, that was the start of the same day which we're going on to now. And if we look at that day and look at what is recorded in the Gospels, in this 24-hour period, all of these at least happened, and possibly more. So Jesus kept the Passover with his disciples. He instituted the Last Supper. He prayed in Gethsemane. He is arrested. He is questioned by the high priest and tried before the Sanhedrin. And all of that takes place between sunset and sunrise. Then after daybreak, there's then the official trial before the Sanhedrin, because the one they already done at night isn't really, doesn't really count officially. He's taken to Pilate. He's then taken on to Herod. He's then sentenced by Pilate. He's mocked and beaten by the soldiers and he's taken to the crucifixion. And that is over about six hours in the morning. And then from midday to about three o'clock in the afternoon is the time of the crucifixion. And then between that time and sunset, Joseph of Arimathea sees Jesus has died, realises that if nothing's done, his body's just going to be thrown in a common grave of criminals. So he goes to Pilate to ask for the body. Pilate doesn't believe that somebody could be dead from a crucifixion already, because normally it took days. So he sends for the centurion to check. Centurion comes to Pilate, confirms Jesus is dead. So then Joseph of Arimathea can go back, collect the body, and try and get it ready uh, for burial in his tomb. So all of that takes place in one day. Obviously, I can't cover all of that in one sermon, and I'm not going to try to. If you want to look into things further, a useful book I came across a few years ago 
is called Easter Enigma by John Wenham. His main aim is to try and correlate the different accounts in the Gospels, which sometimes seem to contradict each other. And the big advantage I've found with this book is in doing that, he gives you little maps showing you where things could have actually taken place in Jerusalem. So particularly when we get to uh, Sam's one next week on Easter, where people seem to be coming and going and missing each other, actually his maps are quite useful in showing how that could feasibly have occurred. One thing I'm not going to do today, really, is deal with what are the theological consequences of Jesus' crucifixion. If that, that is of interest to you, I highly recommend this book, The Passion of Jesus Christ by John Piper. It was written, I think, in 2004, when there was uh, a film by Mel Gibson called The Passion of the Christ. And basically, John Piper wrote this to show what actually Jesus' passion achieved. And in it, there are 50 different things which have happened because Jesus died on the cross. And I think he misses a few out, but 50 is a good starting point. But I think it stresses the point which Sam made in his first bit, and which uh, he just mentioned in his prayer. This is the most important week in history. Because if Jesus didn't die on the cross, it's not just, you know, okay, we wouldn't have our sins dealt with. That it's critical to the whole history of the universe. And this deals with some of it. There are a few copies on the table if they haven't already been taken. Uh, if they do all get taken, we've got a few more copies at the church office. Which So if you can't find one on the table after and you haven't got one, do get hold of one. It's not the sort of book to read in one go. You know, it's sort of two or three chapters at a time and to think about. Because I think rather than a more conventional sermon today, what I want to do is actually just contemplate a bit about what it meant for some of the people there and in some of the contexts. Back in the 70s, before Graham Kendrick started writing worship songs, he was a sort of uh, folk pop type artist trying to get Christian material into the general uh, pop scene. And there was one song he wrote, probably on the, I think the last album he, did, he wrote before he went into more uh, producing worship songs. And it actually looks at Peter on the evening of Good Friday. And what would, if you were Peter, after all these events have taken place, what would you do? I'll come back to it a bit later. I can't remember all the words, but it starts one of the uh, starting point is, was it, it may seem funny, but I once believed in a king with no country and his kingly dreams. You know, this day is a whole roller coaster. So even for somebody like Peter, let alone somebody like Jesus or any of the other people, you've got highs, you've got lows. The emotions are all there. Last week I left it at the 
when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. So what I want to do now, and I've uh, lost my, think write this reference down. Uh, so if we could have up the first passage from Mark 14, because I can't remember where I started it from, whether I started uh, from verse 26 or from 32. From 26, right, yeah. So let's start looking from verse 26 in Matthew 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. <coughs> Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I think in this passage, I think we can get a touch of some of the emotion involved. I don't think we can't approach this, looking at this part of Jesus' ministry just as abstract theology, just as facts to be uh, read about. I think one of the things which the baptism in the Spirit did for me was it made me more able, if you like, to use my emotions in worship. I was grown up in a very much a sort of English stiff upper lip kind of uh, approach to life. And you might notice it's still there to a large extent. But I think I found in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know, the fact that I could use my emotions. Your emotions aren't something just to be suppressed. And we find that Jesus here is very emotional. Because Jesus 
as human as we are human. So as we have anxiety, as we face uncertain things, he had anxiety. There's no emotions we have which Jesus hasn't experienced. It's easy to think of Jesus as if he was sort of just wafted through his life, not really affected by what's going on around. The fact that he was without sin actually made sin around him harder to deal with, not easier. I think if we try, as we try to let the Holy Spirit work in our lives so that we live more holy lives, we become more aware of our sin, not less aware of it. Because things which didn't bother us in the past now do start bothering us. Things we weren't aware of where we were short of God's standard, we're now aware that we're short of God's standard. Which isn't an argument for not trying to live a holy life, but it is an argument for being realistic and not thinking that living a holy life is going to be easy. But the rewards always outweigh any downside. So Jesus already has told his disciples that in what's coming, they're going to run away. He's going to be left on his own. And all of them, okay, we hear mainly about Peter because he sort of you know, jumps in feet first as usual, but all of them say, we will stand with you. And yet Jesus knows all of them are going to run away. He knows that Peter's going to deny him. So he goes to pray and he asks his disciples to pray as well. And his disciples very much like you and me are thinking, well, we've done enough for today. Even if they want to pray, they fall asleep within about the first five minutes. I know it's not probably the best way of approaching it, but if I'm sleepless, one of the things I often try doing is praying because I often find it's a very good way of sending me to sleep. Now, I wouldn't, that's not the best argument for prayer, but it, I find it happens. Our bodies are weak. You know, we, however much our best wishes are, however much we tend not to do, end up doing what we think we would want to do, or even what we think we're capable of doing. I remember once I, uh, in my teenage years, I was at, at an all-night prayer vigil. <coughs> And it was quite interesting at about half past two in the morning when, I'm not sure if it's accidentally or not, but somebody, uh, the person who was speaking kicked the microphone stand and suddenly saw across the room people suddenly uh, wake up because they had drifted off. But Jesus knows he needs to pray. 
he knows that without his father's support he is not going to get through this I think it's easy to think that because Jesus knew he had to go to the cross that therefore in some ways that was easy for him it wasn't and in fact when he talks to him about prayer he says my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch those words about being sorrowful to death come from Psalms 42 and 43 and I actually want to read Psalm 42 because we have a tendency to pick a couple of verses out of this psalm and not actually take on board all the rest so this is Psalm 42 which is what Jesus has in his mind as he's going into Gethsemane to pray as a deer pants for flowing streams so pants my soul for you O God my soul thirsts for God for the living God when shall I come and appear before God my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long where is your God these things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise a multitude keeping festival why are you cast down O my soul and why are you in turmoil within me hope in God for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God my soul is cast down within me Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So in that, there's, a, there's the reality that... We can be in times of prayer and things don't seem to be working out. If anything, things seem to get worse. But within that psalm, there's also that expectation that I know who God is. I know God will see me through this. I know I can trust him. So you've got both of those themes coming through. And he asked his father, is it possible for the cup to be taken from him? 
they can get into rather abstract theological arguments as whether it would have been possible for Jesus not to go to the cross or not. In many ways, it's all a bit uh, pointless because he did. But there is the reality that at this point, Jesus had to choose to go to the cross. There is a real sense in that he could have chosen not to, which would have been dire for us and the world, because as we pointed out, this is critical to sort of the history of the universe. So in one sense, yes, Jesus did have to go, but there's also a very real sense that he chose to go. And that he, if, but there's this element that he chose to go because there was no other way for our, the penalty for our sins to be paid. It's a bit like you can get into arguments as to whether when Jesus died, did he, did he die for the sins of everybody or only those who are going to be saved? On something like that, I would look to John chapter 1 and verse 29, where it says, this is uh, John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That doesn't, in a sense, really deal with the, give you an absolute answer, because sometimes in the Bible when it talks about the whole world or whatever, it doesn't, it's clear from the context it doesn't mean everyone. What I do know for certain is that there isn't anybody whose sins Jesus hasn't died for. Well, let me rephrase it that way. There is nobody who can say, I can't be saved because Jesus didn't die for my sins. That is the way to put it. And that is the important thing. That nobody, there's nobody in the world whose sins are so dire that they cannot be saved. Because in the sense that Jesus was so perfect that he could take the penalty for anyone. Then the arrest comes. Peter draws his sword. We're not told it's Peter here. Mark was writing when Peter was still alive. We're told it's Peter in John's Gospel uh, because John was writing after Peter was dead and therefore if it was known it wouldn't uh, cause him any further uh, problems of uh, being sentenced to death uh, or whatever over it. So Peter 
And the other disciples try to defend Jesus, but Jesus stops them. And they run away. And we also find in the next verses this young man runs away. It's quite possible that the Garden of Gethsemane, which is somewhere where Jesus clearly had met his disciples before, actually belonged to Mark's father. And if we go back to what I was saying last time, you've got masses of people in that uh, sort of the young people of the household could have been sent to sleep in rooms in the uh, olive uh, garden, which Gethsemane was, to make room for guests in the family house. So that could quite easily explain why with the crowd come to arrest Jesus to come, Mark wakes up, pulls his sheet round him to go and see what's happening. And you can get this context in verse 51. But then Jesus is taken to the high priest's house. While they get the the council in to have the trial, the high priest starts questioning him. They start looking for witnesses. And they can't even fix a trial to find him guilty. They can't even fix false witnesses to get Jesus found guilty. So you almost get the farce situation of Jesus actually has to provide them with the evidence they need to find him guilty because they can't do it themselves. Again, if Jesus had wanted to get out of being crucified, he could have just kept quiet and the whole thing would have collapsed. But he knows what God has called him to. And he's going to see it through. And throughout Mark, you get all these contrasts. Jesus tells the truth, which leads to his death. While Peter tells lies to try and get away, keep his life. Jesus, the innocent person, is killed as a rebel leader the real rebel leader Barabbas is set free Jesus is you know you have all these pictures here of how Jesus took what we deserved and suffered in our place Pilate clearly knew that the whole thing was a fix. We don't even have to look at what he said to know that, because he only crucified Jesus. If there was a real revolt, the Romans had no qualms with crucifying thousands of people. If Pilate had actually thought that Jesus, there was any hint that Jesus was about to lead a revolt, he would have gone after the disciples. The fact that he didn't shows that he is 
he understood that Jesus was not guilty of the charge actually against him. Crucifixion was so vile a punishment in polite Roman society you didn't refer to it. You know, it was the execution for the worst criminals. It wasn't, if you like, your standard method of execution. Its purpose was to instill terror. It was so because the Romans ruled, effectively ruled their empire by fear. So if Jesus had not come, what would our society be like now? You know, many elements of our, the way we do society come from the Romans. But they've come down for the later part of the Roman Empire, influenced by Christianity. And over the centuries, Christianity has had its influence. As I've mentioned previously, by the mid-11th uh, century, you could not be a slave in this country because of the influence of Christianity. Admittedly, it took us about another 800 years to realise that applied to people from other countries, but you couldn't be a slave in this country. And it is clearly the influence of the church which brought that about. Because the Saxons kept slaves, the Vikings kept slaves, expect the Normans had slaves, but within a couple of centuries of the influence of the church on those groups of people slavery had actually gone <coughs> again as Sam said this is the critical week in the history of the world because if Jesus hadn't died things would have been completely different Finally, I just want to finish by looking at Mark chapter 15, from verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph and Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of G Joseph, saw where he was laid. As already said, by now it was too late.
to get the body properly ready for burial. So Jesus' body was hurriedly put in the tomb, not really properly, not washed, not really treated uh, with spices as would normally be done. One of the other Gospels suggests that Nicodemus brought spices at that time, but they hadn't had time to do things properly. So this now leaves us scene set for Easter morning, which I leave to Sam. But if the uh, band would like to come back up. But what about Peter? What would he do? He's denied his Lord. Graham Kendrick's bit, I think, has him going down to the pub to drown his sorrows in a sort of uh, gallon of wine or something. Well, after all, the drinks are on Barabbas. Somebody's happy. And a weight is on his mind. It says, but as I reach my hand out, something happens to the wine. Panic grips me tight as I step into the night. All roads lead on back to you. <laughs>